0: morning? Okay, we are going to have some fun this morning. We're launching into a new series, Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. So our ushers are going to be bringing around little two packs of Oreo cookies. Here's your instructions. If you are a couple, it is one pack per couple. I know, it stinks to be married, doesn't it? One pack per couple. If you got kids, they can have their own pack, that's fine. But if you are here with somebody else, married, dating, uh, you just came together because you thought it was a good idea, whatever it is, you're splitting one pack of two-pack of cookies, and uh, we'll let everybody get it, and then I'll give you some instructions. Don't eat them right away, but uh, we're going to pass these out, and then we're going to have a little bit of fun as we kind of introduce this series. So, one cookie per couple Kids can take them at their parents' kind of discretion here. Once you've got your cookies, okay, it looks like we're almost there. Let's go ahead and open up your cookies, one per person. Again, if you are here without your spouse or you are a single entity today, you get to rub in everybody's faces because you get two cookies. Everybody else, share your cookies. And then we're talking about the better half, right? So once you have your cookies, each one of you with a cookie, everybody can do this. We're going to do the classic Oreo twist, right? So you've got your cookie. And uh, on the count of three, let's give it a twist here. Is everybody Ready? One, two, three, twist. How did it come off? Do you have uh, one side on frosting, one side or the other? Did your cookie completely crumble and disintegrate? What happened to your cookie? Now, I want you to survey your cookie. Don't eat it yet. I saw somebody put it in their mouth, you're in trouble. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the cookie, figure out which half is the better half, and then if you are here with your spouse, significant other couple, or somebody that you kind of like, I want you to give them the best half of your cookie. Give them the best half of your cookie. Look at your cookie, figure out which is the best half. Maybe it's the side with the most frosting. Maybe it's the side with all the frosting. Maybe it's the side that didn't disintegrate into your hand. Once you have given them your better half, you are welcome to eat your cookies. And uh, it's not quite communion, but I think that we can make a... Not not quite, it's getting close. We'll talk about that later. Here we go. A couple of observations from our little experiment here, right? First and foremost, there's always a better half, Right? There's always a better half to the cookie. There's always a better piece, more frosting, the one that didn't crumble. There's always a better half. Sometimes it may be difficult to tell which is the better half, right? Sometimes the frosting is on both sides. Sometimes it doesn't come across evenly. There's always a better half, but it sometimes takes a little bit of work to see which is the better half. Once you know which the better half is, though, you still have a choice. You can keep the best for yourself, you little sinner, or you can trade it give your best half to your spouse, right? And once you do that, then you have to trust that your spouse is going to give you the best half of their cookie. Otherwise, they're going to end up with a double stuff and you're just going to have two cookies rubbing together, right? So we're going to have some fun talking about Mr. and Mrs. Better Half. This is our sweet new series, and uh, we're going to have some fun, and you're going to want to be back here regularly because we're going to talk about relationships over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to use primarily marriage relationships, but if you're not married or if that doesn't speak to you, don't worry. We think that this will apply to friendships, even parenting relationships, dating relationships, all across the board because fundamentally what it comes down to is us bringing the best half of ourselves into all of our significant relationships, whether that's in our marriage or in our friendships or with our coworkers, there's gonna be transferable principles. So please don't check out and uh, please make sure that you're here every single week, not just for the cookies, but because we're gonna have some good conversations revolving this type of conversation. And so to to jump into this, we're gonna use a story as kind of our primary launching point. We're gonna use the story of Jacob to talk about relationships, to talk about the better half of our relationship. So I'm going to invite you that if you brought your Bible or you want to pull out your smartphone, we're going to spend today in Genesis chapter 29. If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along, our ushers are going to be coming up, walking through the aisles with Bibles. Just slip your hand up. They'd love to give you one. And if you're following along on the Worship Center Bibles, we're on page 14. So not too far to turn. Page 14, Genesis chapter 29. So to tell this story as you're flipping there, um, I'm going to need some audience participation, okay? Uh, this is something that we should have sound checked, so I'm going, to, I'm going to whistle here in just a second, William, wherever you are, and heads up to there. So guys, I have a sound effect for you. Uh, he goes running back to the booth there. That's funny. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him I was going to do this. Oops. Guys, your sound effect for the middle of the story is a whistle But not just any whistle, right? We're talking about relationships, so I need you to give the kind of whistle that you did the first time you saw your wife. There it is, right? Thank you, gentlemen. I didn't whistle, William. I saved you. Sorry for the panic there. That's the whistle. I'll tell you when it comes up. Thank you, gentlemen. Ladies, you have a part to play too, and uh, I need your sound effect, but I, I can't do your sound effect. It just doesn't work. But I need you to make the kind of sound that you would see when you see something that's endearing or cute yeah see like a cute puppy just like that thank you so much for not making me do it nobody wants to hear that but we've got two sound effects and I'll give you a little bit of heads up um, but I hope that you'll be able to hear it from within the story so today we're talking about Jacob whom you may recall is Abraham's grandson we talked in our last series looked at his son Isaac and Rebecca and their kind of roller coaster relationship from falling in love to somehow falling out of love by the end and that's kind of where we pick up our story right Jacob is this one of the twins that's born to Isaac and to Rebekah. Jacob is the one who you remember deceives his father, steals his brother's birthright, and he ends up alienating his entire family. And so his brother Esau, who's a wild man, he's an outdoor kind of guy, uh, gets a little upset by all that. And so he decides that he's just going to, yo take him out, right? He's going to fix the problem. And uh, so Jacob, being the mama's boy that he is, decides to run away like a mama's boy, right? So Jacob is running away, and he finds himself at his uncle's house. His name is Laban, and that's kind of where our story picks up. He tells Laban his whole sob story about his mom and his dad, and how his brother wants to kill him, all those kinds of things. And Laban says, hey, why don't you come live with me? And this is where we begin the story of Mr. and Mrs. Better Half with Jacob. Genesis 29, verse 16, if you're following along. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure, and Gentleman was beautiful. A couple of you got it, right? That's the cue right there. Rachel has a lovely figure and was beautiful. And uh, all God's people agreed together and whistled. Thanks so much for your participation there. Now, a quick pause here as we talk about the biblical narrative. This may be a little bit odd, right? As you're reading the Bible, we don't anticipate coming across these kinds of physical descriptions. We kind of think that maybe they're even out of place. And so whenever they do appear, they're always there for a reason. The author is trying to communicate something to us that's important behind the scenes. And so what they're trying to illustrate for us is this disparity between Laban's two daughters, between Leah and between Rachel. See, the the relationship that's going to develop between the two of them, it's important that the author's kind of trying to tell us that there's some tension already in place there. And so when he makes this description, he's trying to draw our attention to the difference between Leah and to Rachel. Now, Leah, it says, was lovely, figured, and beautiful. Other translations say beautiful face, whatever it is. Leah is the pretty, younger, lucky one, right? Or excuse me, Rachel is. Now, Leah, it says in the Bible, had weak eyes, right? Which your Bible, depending on which translation you use, may have the term uh, nice eyes, which sounds okay, Except that if I set you up on a date, and I say, hey, I really want you to meet my friends, and you say, tell me a little bit about them, and I say, nice eyes. (laughs) A little bit of a problem there, right? So the the author's trying to draw a correlation here that Rachel is the pretty younger sister, and Leah, unfortunately, is the ugly older sister. This is the story that's played out in their relationship. To make matters worse, uh, Leah's name in Hebrew means Cow. Yeah, I know. Thanks, Dad. Right? And uh, Rachel means little lamb, right? Which is just so sweet. And so there's... Yeah, All right. That wasn't the sound effect, but good job. I appreciate you doing that. So there's this disparity growing up. There are two observations. Number one, Dad's got a problem with livestock, right? We can just throw that out there. Number two, really, Dad? Cow? I mean you got to help Leah out some here a little bit, right? Now, if your name is Leah in here today, quick, stand aside. In English, Leah means beautiful meadow. So ladies, you are a beautiful meadow. Your name does not mean Hebrew for cow. I promise you that. But we're going to keep reading here just a little bit because Jacob falls head over heels in love with Rachel. Verse 18. Jacob was in love with Rachel. And said, I will, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Let's just pause the story right here, right? This would have been a typical arrangement, right? Brides in this day and age, in this culture, were expected to be redeemed with a dowry. Jacob just ran away from home. He has no money. He has no possessions. And so working for a bride would have been very, very culturally acceptable. What's not acceptable is the price that he throws out there in a typical marriage arrangement, a typical dowry, one year's worth of wages would have been about what would have been considered fair. A year and a half would have been incredibly generous. And Jacob here, Mr. Romance, says, no, 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 no. Seven years, I'll work for your daughter, Rachel, right? Jacob is head over heels in love with this girl, right? And so his goal is to go and to prove that. Ladies, here comes your sound effect. Verse 20. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. I know, right? What a sweetheart. What a great kind of guy. He gives himself up. He works for no pay for seven years. He pays seven times the, the normal amount. It was culturally acceptable so that he can marry the pretty younger sister Rachel, right? This is just a love story that's written out of the Bible and the only problem is that our story doesn't stop there as is so often the case. So Jacob works for seven years. He pushes and he pulls and he keeps working and working and working and he's not married and so he keeps having this love relationship that kindles and grows but after seven years it just gets a little bit long it just gets a little bit drawn out and the story that we see or the point that we see illustrated in this story is that falling in love is really really easy but working for seven years to keep love alive is very very hard Right? Being attracted to a beautiful face and a lovely form is natural, but staying in love for seven years without being married, without getting paid, makes for a very, very different scenario. As a matter of fact, Jacob is going to let kind of his true colors come out here in verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Let me, this is just a very kind translation. The actual Hebrew here uh, would have been fairly insulting, both to Laban and to Rachel. It would have not come across well. So Jacob starts out really well, right? It seemed like only a day to him because he was so in love. But then by the end, just give me my wife, okay? It's time to move this whole thing along. Because after so much time in a relationship, we can only hide our true character for so long. You may recall that Jacob's name means deceiver, As he's entering into this relationship, he comes out all strong and all bravado. He says all the right things. Dad loves him. Sisters love him. Everybody is for Jacob. And then seven years wear on and his true character, his true nature begins to come out just a little bit more and more each time. So Jacob starts out well, but eventually it kind of grates on him. It wears him down. And so as we pull back from our story today, we're going to take two weeks really to unpack this full story, what's happening here. But just today, I want us to kind of stop right here for just a moment to look headlong into this story and to talk a little bit more about Jacob and about ourselves as we're in this situation. I just wonder if you've ever been there. If you've ever been in a similar situation, I highly doubt that you've worked seven years without pay just to put a ring on it. I don't think that's quite the correlation that I'm drawing for you, but I think that we can all relate to long seasons of being in a relationship where over time things change, where over time things happen, right? You may or may not be married, but you can maybe resonate with the frustration that comes from being on the long journey to find that person to share your life with. Or maybe you can relate because your spouse is frustrated about something that's out of your control, or maybe that's within your control, but there's nothing that you can do about it. I just wonder if, in your relationships, again, whether this is your significant spousal relationship, whether it's in friendships, even relationships with our coworkers and kids, if the rose colored glasses have ever come off. If you look back and reflect on those relationships, on the way in which they happened, that they started out really, really good. They started out sharing things and being on the same page, and everything was on the up and up. And then all of a sudden, things get a little bit tense, a little bit frustrated. Maybe it wasn't even seven years, but time goes on in our relationships. Maybe you find yourself today in a relationship that you've just decided that the easiest piece, the most regular piece, is to just stick it through to the end, because if we're honest... We really set out for more than this. In our marriage, in our relationships, we wanted more from him and we wanted more from her. But now this is kind of just the way that life plays out. Our true colors have kind of come to the surface. See, I think and part of our direction for today is that something happens after we fall in love. And the things that enabled us to fall in love are not the things that will keep us in love. See, falling in love and staying in love are not the same thing. Falling in love and staying in love are not the same thing. It takes a different set of circumstances. It takes a different amount of work to stay in love than it does to simply fall in love in love. Like think back to the last time you were dating. Maybe it was dating the person who would become your spouse or your last boyfriend or girlfriend and you thought, man, I would give anything to feel that way again. The, the feeling of being in love, of being pursued, of being desired, cared for, respected. See, we all want to feel that kind of love. We all want to carry and treasure that within us. And so the tra- that translates into our relations- relationships that whenever we aren't feeling that way, Whenever we're not feeling loved or cared for or desired, our internal nature, the thing that we want to do is to cultivate that again. And so we begin to pursue similar things. Well, maybe it takes a new relationship. Maybe it takes a new kind of opportunity, and we begin to search for romance and love in other situations. Maybe this takes the form of a coworker. Maybe it takes the form of doing something different on the side. But the reality is simply this, that when our love is cold, when our love shifts to something different, we find ourselves seeking after that love in a different way. This is Jacob's story, right? For seven years he agrees to work and he assumed that he would stay in love that entire time. He assumed that his relationship, that falling in love with Rachel would sustain and keep him over the course of that seven years. But over time, over distance of our relationship, over the things that we do, love changes and shifts. Our desires change and shift and too often we don't make the time to translate those two Things We don't take the time to find out what's actually going on. And so the the reality is, or the translation perhaps, is that we end up pursuing a feeling of love. We end up pursuing and desiring something that makes us feel a certain way. And at some point we'll almost go to any lengths to feel that way again. Sometimes it results in positive things, but usually it results in negative things. It's very, very difficult to rekindle that among our relationships. And this is where I think Scripture and where I think the Bible has something to give to us, something to remind us of. And it's incredibly simple. It's not something profound. It's something that you've definitely heard from before. But chances are, if you've ever been there, if you've ever been where Jacob is, if you've ever found yourself in the gap between falling in love and staying in love that we haven't quite thought about it this way. Or if we have, we've perhaps given up along some way. So I'm going to invite us to turn or to follow along with John chapter 13, verse 34. And in this, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to you and to I. He's talking to a group of people around them. And he says, hey, I've got a new command for you. New doesn't necessarily mean like brand new, never heard of it. It could mean like a summation. It could mean like I've got a new direction. I've got some insight on how to spin this for you. And it's very, very simple. He says simply this, love one another. Love one another. And you might be going, yeah, that's the whole point, right? That's what we're talking about. We've got to learn how to love one another. But I just want to give us a quick English lesson here, right? See, when we pursue love, when we pursue that thing, that feeling, that romantic attraction, love becomes a noun, right? A person, place, or a thing. And so we end up pursuing a thing, we end up pursuing a feeling Instead of actually doing what this verse says. See, the verse here, love is an action. Love is a verb. Jesus says, go and love one another. And we mistranslate this. We say, yeah, 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 that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get loved. I'm trying to feel loved. I'm trying to have love within my relationship. And Jesus says, that's all fine, but I'm not talking about a person, place, or a thing, feeling kind of love. He says, I'm talking about doing the action of loving. I'm talking about making love a verb in your life. And that's kind of where we raise our red flags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't just love that way because if I love that way they might take advantage. And so I've got to I've got to guard and protect and seek out this thing that I makes me feel a certain way and Jesus says that's fine. It's just not It's just not my kind of love. It's just not the example, the biblical truth that I'm trying to give for you. As a matter of fact, he says, it's not even the way that I love. God is love, 1 John tells us. And here Jesus says, not only are you to love one another, he says, let me illustrate that for you. As I have loved you, so you ought to love one another. In the same way, in the same capacity, how does Jesus love us? Jesus doesn't come seeking a feeling. He doesn't come seeking anything in and of himself. He's not pursuing a noun type of relationship. Jesus leaves heaven. He comes as love incarnate. It says that so that no one should perish, but everyone should follow after him. God so loved the world. Jesus says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, love one another. And no matter what our story is, no matter what our expectations are there, the biblical mandate, the biblical model for us is to carry the love of Jesus in our hearts. And again, this verse isn't directed at all towards marriages or relationships of that capacity. This is given to a group of 12 disciples, right? All men. And he's saying, hey, love one another. Be characterized by the way in which you love one another, John later says in his letter. And so all too often in our relationships, we find ourselves doing what the culture does. Instead of following Jesus' example, we pursue a feeling, we pursue something that makes us feel a certain way, that relationship, that rekindling, that passion, whatever it is. And Jesus says, man, that's a noun, and really you've got to make love a verb. You've got to make it an action step that we take. You've got to make it something that inhabits you, that comes from me, and that enables you to live a certain way. As we talk about being Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, this is the difference between seeking something for ourselves and actually pouring ourselves out for our loved ones, whether it be a spouse or friendships or relationships with our kids, whatever it is, love has to be a verb, not simply something that we seek to take for ourselves. As I was reviewing this message, I was reminded of something that we talked about almost a year ago, and it's just so foundational to this whole conversation that I thought it'd be good for us to review it again. So this is called the cycle of self-deception. I didn't write it. It's not mine. We're completely borrowing it, and it's going to make a circle My arrows aren't going to make a circle because I'm not that good on a computer, but you'll see as we move along here. But this is called the cycle of self-deception. And again, this applies all the time to our relationships. I see it play out time and time again, but it applies to communication. It applies to coworkers, friendships, children, whatever you want to apply it to. This cycle kind of comes into play and it rears its ugly head, and we'll talk more about why that's important. But whenever something happens. Right? Whenever a situation occurs, whenever something comes into your world that frustrates you or makes you happy or whatever it is, right, we've got an incoming stimulus. And when we have that incoming stimulus, we're left with one choice. The simple choice is to honor or to betray We have the choice to honor that person, honor the thing that happened, honor what's going on in our lives, to believe the best about them, to believe that they mean the best, that they're well-intentioned, that perhaps we're misunderstanding if it's something that made us angry. We have the choice to honor, or we have the choice to betray, which feels like a strong word, but we'll get to more on why that's there here as we unpack it. When we betray, that's when we tend to think the worst about someone where we don't give them the benefit of the doubt, where our history and our relationship and the things that we believe to be true kind of come in. And so we have the choice to either believe the best about somebody or to believe the worst about somebody. If you believe the best about someone, chances are you're not going to be self-deceived. Chances are that you're going to continue hoping and believing the best, and that's going to be fine and dandy for your relationship. But far too often, I find myself on the other side of this equation. And here's why that's a problem. See, once you decide to betray, once you decide to kind of go, well, they probably meant to do this, or certainly it's them, or they're not this way, then we begin through this cycle of self-deception. It starts with inflation we inflate. We inflate our positive virtues and we inflate their flaws, right? I would never do something like that. Can you believe he always does this? She's always late. He always overspends. We inflate what's good about us and in the same moment we inflate what's wrong with whatever person is on the other side of our equation, Right, We always see it through those lens of always and never because once we have those inflated characteristics, now all of a sudden we're looking through the lens of reality through a distorted lens. That's the second kind of step. See, once inflated virtues and inflated flaws are out there, it's very easy to distort the situation, to distort our relationship based on this inflated kind of view. Distortion looks, again, like I just said, it looks like always and never, It looks like, man, if this is the way that they're going to behave, then my response will be this. It looks like continually coming up against a false view of reality, right? You begin to infer from that, you know what, I don't think this is fair. After all, I deserve better. I don't think she really cares. I don't think he really listens to me. When we have that distorted view of reality caused by our inflated characteristics that we see, then that leads us to justify our actions. It leads us to be vindicated in the things that we do to each other. It leaves us to be vindicated in horrible, not loving, not honoring decisions that we make, right? Well, if he's not going to call, then I'm not going to leave dinner out. If she doesn't have the decency to respect the budget, then I will just stop following it too. We're justified in our negative actions because we're looking through a distorted lens caused by inflated flaws and inflated virtues on either side. You can see how easily we move to being self-deceived, but we're not even done there because then after we're justified in the negative actions that we take towards each other, all of a sudden we're free to place blame. After all, the incoming stimulus was probably caused by that other person, and so it's all their fault. right? I wouldn't act this way if they would just, I don't want to be this way, but he just doesn't understand, he just doesn't respect, she just doesn't X, Y, Z, fill in the blank with whatever you want to. We've all had this argument, this conversation far too often, and what it creates is a feedback loop where we're stuck in this cycle of being self-deceived because now whenever something happens, we automatically run this same trail again. Well, that's just typical, right? He's always gonna do that. She never is gonna follow through with that, and this just happens. We inflate, and then we distort, and then we justify, and then we blame, which causes us to betray, and inflate, and distort, and the cycle spins on and on. And here's the really sad part, and here's the part where it comes to Mr. and Mrs. Betterhalf. It's not called the cycle of deception. It's called the cycle of self-deception because what happens is now no matter what happens on the outside, no matter what somebody else does, you've already written the conversation out in your mind. You've already followed through this. You already assume the worst. You already say that's just like him. That's just like her. And so we keep being self-deceived. It, could, it doesn't matter what they do or what they don't do because we've already made the decision up in our minds. Love one another. Make love a verb. And the problem is that we've decided no matter what happens that we're just going to spin around in this loop. And so it cycles and spins through over and over again. It may be something outside of us that starts us in that cycle, but it comes down to our choices, to the things that we do. So here's the the moral of the story today, right? Most of us, I think, are deceived into thinking, we're self-deceived into thinking that we're the better half. I mean, have you seen us, right? Come on. Here's all the good things that I do, and we can list it down to the teeniest, tiniest thing. Here's all the good stuff that I do for her. Here's all the things that I do for him. I'm amazing, and he just can't pick up his socks. Right? She just can't help me out in this area, and so we inflate our own virtues. Most of us believe that we're the better half. Right? Jacob thought he was the better half. Right? He worked seven years without pay just to prove his undying love for Rachel. By the time the cycle of self-deception spins on, we see him justified in his claim, give me my wife, my time is completed. He's completely on this cycle of being self-deceived, and we'll talk about why that's important as we get to next week, but here's what matters for us today. I think many of us are deceived into thinking that we're the better half, and we run this circle, and we run this feedback loop over and over again, and because of that teeny tiny thought that we're the better half, it gives us permission to not take Jesus at his word. It gives us permission to not love our spouse, to not love our neighbors, to not put things into place, because after all, if they would only stop doing this whole crazy cycle, then I could love them, then I could be a piece of that. But we don't make love a verb because we don't take the time to stop and to break the cycle of being self-deceived. We read our own press, we buy our own headlines, and we think that we're the better half. So to set the foundation for this entire series, here's the, the one piece that I would give to you. Stop thinking you're the better half and start instead being the better half. Stop thinking. Stop self-justifying. Stop being self-deceived that everything you do is right and everything that they do is wrong. Again, this could be in your marriage. This could be with a troubled coworker. This could be with your children. Stop being self-deceived that you're the better half and instead start doing the actions that are contingent, that are in line with actually being the better half of the relationship. Bring your best self into the relationship. In translation, right, make love a verb. Make love some something that you do in your significant relationships and in those times and in those opportunities, right? Because here's the final piece. When we end up buying this this lie, when we end up being self-deceived within this, our love finds itself being corrupted. It finds itself being taken advantage of. We find ourselves wanting to be self-justified in the decisions and actions that we make. And we begin to think that we're immune to some of the things that we're talking about. After all, we're already the better half. And so this is a lot for today, but I just wanted us to start off on a strong foundation. I wanted us to start with this cycle of self-deception in our mind and and with a long, hard look in the mirror. Because if we're going to talk about being Mr. and Mrs. Better Half, the reality is that it starts not on the other side of the equation, but it starts with us. It starts by taking this week and by taking this cycle of self deception, having a long, hard look in the mirror and going, where do I believe the worst about my spouse, my friendships, my significant other, my coworker? And instead, where can I begin to believe the best? Where can I begin to honor, where can I begin to set aside those things? Because as we go through the story of Jacob, we're going to see some of the some of the terrible things that get shaken loose because of the cycle that's spinning on, because they refuse to be the better half, and instead they sought to find their self-worth in other areas and in other ways and opportunities. So here's my challenge for you this week, right? Stop thinking you're the better half and start being the better half, and it starts by taking some time to just look in the mirror, to just stop and to look and to go, what piece of this is mine? Where am I giving my best as it comes to those things? And so I just want to invite you into a moment right now to to just bow your heads, take a quiet moment here and ask the Holy Spirit what he would have you take from this. Again, maybe you're not in a marriage relationship and you're going, man, this is just a waste of my time. I don't want to sit through this for the four weeks. Stop right now and stop being self-deceived that you know everything that there is to know about a relationship and start asking the Holy Spirit what he wants to speak to you. Maybe you are married and maybe you found yourself in this pattern for far too long and the Holy Spirit just wants to put his finger on what you're bringing into this relationship to be the better half yourself. Maybe you need to have some more conversations about an argument that happened ages ago but it just never found Resolution. Whatever it is, I want to give you that time and that opportunity to let God speak to you because his word to you is going to be far more important than anything that I say. But as we talk about being the better half, we're gonna explore this over the next couple of weeks. What does it mean to be the better half? And now that we know what it takes or as we expound on what it takes to be the better half, then how do we give that to our spouse? How do we trust that those relationships are gonna give us their best back and what happens when they don't? This is what it means to be the better half in a relationship and trusting in God's way that we would love each other just as he loved us. So I hope this is meaningful. I hope this is powerful for you. Let me just pray with you together now. Holy Spirit, we give you permission and we give you opportunity now to speak into our hearts and our lives. God, make whatever needs to stick in our hearts stick. May it lead to conversations and may it lead to reminders and may it lead to rekindling of friendships and love and romance. God, whatever it would be for you, God, but more than anything, would you give us the braveness and the courage to kind of sit in front of the mirror with your word, with this truth, and to go, where am I the better half and, and where am I not? Where am I honoring my spouse, my friends, my coworkers, God, and where am I betraying their confidence and letting this cycle spin out of control? Heavenly Father, you have a work to do within each of us to make us into the best half that we can be and to bring that into our relationships. And God, my prayer is that we would start together and that you would move us along a path of self-reflection and of self, uh, self-exploration, God, to discover the ways in which you would have us carry that message into the relationships that we have around. God, we trust you to speak, we trust you to lead, and we ask and pray now that as we go from this place, God, that you would continue to speak, that you would continue to give us insight into these hearts that you've given us and to these relationships that you've blessed us with, even if they don't always feel like a blessing. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. It is in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, and all God's kids said.